again, church. If you're visiting, my name is Peter, and I serve on the team of elders that leads the church. Today, I'm excited about rounding out, finishing off our series called The Remnant. You know, in recent years, I've heard stories from all over the world of Jesus drawing a bunch of people, millions of people to himself. Stories from China, stories from India, stories even most recently of a women-led revival happening in Iran. How many of y'all know that we need to be encouraged about what God's doing all over the world to be most redemptive where we are, right? Here's the reason why we're doing this series. Even more fundamental than that, we want to discover in God's word the truth about history, about what God's doing in the world, past, present, and future. And we want to trust him and be more secure in trusting in him, the guide of history, engage what we see happening in the world with an appropriate expectation and priority and desire. Amen? I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet to honor God's word. We are finishing up Romans chapter 11. Verses 25 through 36 of Romans 11. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As as regards the gospel, they, Israel, are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were once at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy Because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that mercy might be shown to you. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable. His judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who can be his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. The word of the Lord. Y'all can be seated as we pray. I'm going to read to you a prayer by Pastor John Piper from Desiring God Ministries. Would you pray with me? Lord, would you stun your people? Would you go down into the depths of our hearts and cut away the calluses that have grown over our capacity for being stunned by grace? Would you let our hearts bleed and make them livid with touchability. Help us to 
turn off distractions and screens and wake us up to reality. In Jesus' name, amen. One quick note before I move forward in our text. I want to encourage you to listen to last week's sermon. Go to thespringstx.org. I don't often do this, uh, but last week at the start of our sermon in particular, we clarified a few things about Romans chapter 10, uh, about trusting in God and his faithfulness and his grace as well, and it kind of set the tone for chapter 11. Now we're going to finish off chapter 11 today, and I think you'll be more blessed if you go back and listen to the first part uh, to take in chapter 11 as a whole. But I guarantee you that God will give you grace today if you're present to not lack anything as you sit before God and take in his word from our passage today. Now today, we'll round out the series, we'll round out Romans 11 with three focuses. The mystery of wisdom, the danger of presumption, and the weight of glory. Now we're going to spend most of our time, if not pretty much all of our time, with this first part. Number one, the mystery of of wisdom, and then the other two will be kind of takeaways from that. Verse 25, Paul says, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. He's speaking about specifically a mystery revealed that was previously concealed. I think if, if the mystery hadn't been revealed, we wouldn't be talking about it. God moves in mysterious ways. Remember that old line? We got worn out in religious cliche. Well, we can bring some power back to that in faith. Not just cliche. What I want to do today is I don't, I'm not going to fully explain the mystery as God lays it out through Paul here. If you could explain a mystery, that would contradict the word, the meaning of the word mystery. But I do want to show you how this passage ref, references certain points of redemptive history in all of the world. We really do need God's wisdom in his word to take in the mystery of world history. There are times when we must look upon what God has done in creation, upon his redemptive plan in history, when we see the treasure of the word of God and we're reading the Bible and see, man, this is just more than just human wisdom. When we look upon the confounding wisdom of the cross of Jesus Christ, and in response to these things, we should simply just wonder. We should be shocked. We should render our greatest thoughts to mystery. It's often wise to allow your intellect to bow down in awe. And on the other hand, as Proverbs says, it's sometimes wise to search a matter out, to to learn what we can of what we see in the Scripture and what we see in history. And so my prayer is this, that as we go through this passage and we examine this great mystery of world history and God's redemption in it, I pray that God grants you the wisdom of how to balance divine mystery with human insight or As one preacher said when going through this text, this is really helpful, he exhorted, get as much as you can from as much as he gives. 
And we can know this. If we're believers and we know Jesus, for eternity we'll learn something new about God every day and day after day. And it's not a boring type of learning. Like, you know, learning to fly is going to be one of them. That's going to be cool. And compared to that, everything else, is that, that's just something small. And the depth of God's wisdom and knowledge is unsearchable, as our passage says. But today, get as much as you can from as much as he gives and be content to know how to draw the line as God shows you. Amen? Now let's consider the majesty of how God redeems. He goes in to this mystery that he's describing. Verse 25 goes on. The, the mystery is that a partial hardening, partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now, I'm going to stop here because we need to build some context for some of the words Paul uses here. When he says all, as in all Israel will be saved, and in verse 32, he, he says God has consigned all to disobedience that he might, that he says that all might be saved. You need to know that based on the flow of thought, this all can only mean all without distinction, not all without exception. It's all without distinction, meaning God saves people from all nations without distinction, excluding no ethnicities. No groups of people. Not all, like as in every single individual. So this isn't saying that someday, verse 26, 25, that God will save each and every individual Jewish person. Just like at another point earlier in redemptive history, when God chose the Jews and he chose to to use the, the covenant with Abraham to bless the Jews in contrast with the Gentiles who had rejected him. It was a rejection of the other nations, in essence, all of the peoples in the other nations, but not every single one of them. We, we, we can even see in the Old Testament when God had chosen Israel, he hadn't rejected each and every single Gentile of the other nations. Gentile means non-Jew. Think of Rahab and Ruth and the whole city of Nineveh, a non-Jewish nation that he saved, or King Cyrus, or Naaman was healed, if you are familiar with those stories in the Bible. So when we see this word all, Paul lays out general redemptive history. He's speaking in corporate generalities. Like, in, in essence, All of Israel has rejected Christ. We know there are some glorious exceptions. And he's saying, someday all of Israel will be saved. And he's giving a sweeping statement of world history here. And we need to back up and take this all in from context from the beginning. God created humanity. And and I'll use the the royal all here. God created all human beings to be in relationship with him. All of us, every single individual person was meant to be in a love relationship, vitally connected to the heavenly father. He didn't need to create us. 
He didn't have some sort of insecurity that had to be fulfilled that could only be laid out by creating someone to pour his love on. No, he was already good with himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but he he chose to create humanity. But in the garden, it's the third chapter of the Bible, Genesis 3, humanity, all of humanity, each and every single person rebels through the seed of Adam and Eve exalting themselves, exalting ourselves and our wisdom and our thinking over and against God's design, his wisdom for us. And Adam and Eve brought in into the earth that lie that we are smarter and wiser than God. They became foolish in the whole hashtag you do you lie that's been ravaging humanity ever since. You see, the Bible is painfully relatable if you read it. And if you dare to let it read you. So humanity rejects God. All the nations, each and every single person is sinful. And God could have righteously wiped out humanity. But what does he do? This is the mystery that he's talking about. He uses the devil against himself. He uses our own sin and disobedience to bring us back to himself, to display the mystery of his mercy to produce obedience and worship. Now, this is mysterious. John Piper commented on this. He said, God has designed and guided history, both its disobedience and its obedience, to display the magnificence of his mercy, to stop the mouth of human pride, and to produce white-hot Worship. You see, God knew in his wisdom that he would receive more glorious worship through displaying his mercy over and against our rebellion and our sin and our disobedience than the worship he would receive if we never needed mercy in the first place. And anyone think, who thinks that God won't use disobedience to capacitate us for obedience, or anyone who thinks that God wouldn't use sin to produce righteousness. Or anyone who scoffs at this mystery like we're prone to do in our human nature, Jesus just simply holds out his hand as if to say, shut up. And not with his mouth. He, with the holes in his hand, he says, you don't think I can use human sin to accomplish my will? The holes in my hand produced by the sin of the Romans, nailing him through my hands. And my own Jewish people that sent me to them prove that I can do as I will. I can use human sin to produce redemption. His ways are above our ways. His thoughts are above our thoughts. Now, for us to embrace the mystery of his wisdom as we go through the rest of our passage, I'm kind of giving a summary of redemptive history here. So, number one, Stage one of history, he uses the disobedience of the Gentile nations, basically the sin of the world, as a historical backdrop for his special covenant with Israel. So all the world has fallen away from God, and God uses that context to pull a few people out of what we all deserve. Number two, he uses the disobedience of Israel, who ends up falling away from them, Chapter 11 has been talking about the whole time. He uses their disobedience as a hinge 
for folding back in all of the nations to the same covenant of mercy that he gave to Abraham. To bless the nations as he said he would from the beginning in Genesis 12 when he called Abraham out. Remember, all the nations, meaning the corporate whole of all the nations, that all peoples would have a witness to come back in. Number three, because of this, Israel will someday be brought back in as a corporate whole. Now, let me show you this in our text. We have to move fast. We have to do the best we can to take in all of what he gives, of, of the best that he gives. Amen? Let's use all of our brains. God, help us to use a, a double percent or whatever of, of our capacity to, to ponder your mystery. Stage one, he uses the disobedience of the nations as a backdrop for his special covenant with Israel. Verse 30 gives the seeds of this that's laid out all over Scripture. Paul says, for just as you, Gentile nations, non-Jewish people, which most of us in this room are, just as you were at one time disobedient to God. Paul says it this way in, in Acts 14. He, he, he stood before the people's, I think Mars Hill, and he says, at, at one point in history, God accepted the foolishness and the ignorance and disobedience. But today, God has judged by this Jesus that this is no longer allowable. See, this first stage of ancient history, Paul references here as a backdrop for what God would do in Israel. See, again, this is pretty much all the Gentiles, a corporate whole. As Romans 1 says, that God displays his wrath on the whole world by giving the world, the Gentiles, over to themselves, gives us over to our own passions, lets us do what we want and suffer the consequences of our own choices, even while he gave special grace to his chosen people, Israel. And he chose Abraham out from among the nations. Remember, Abraham was another pagan like the rest of us, a moon worshiper. And he chooses Abraham and his offspring, the people of Israel, to be a special covenant people. But over the centuries, Israel forgot God. They rebelled against him. They forgot their special grace was from God, and they started to think that it was from themselves. They stopped boasting in the goodness of their God, and they started boasting in their own selves, boasting in their own goodness in comparison with the evil Gentile nations. Now, I know this is hard to track with, but just try to track with me here. Because, you know, people trying to gain their value and worth in comparison to other people, I know that's really hard to relate to, but this is what the Jews were doing in this time. Of course, I'm being facetious because this is backwards today, trying to gain our worth in comparison to the sins of others. And it was especially backwards for God's chosen people because Abraham's people were were blessed to be a blessing. Remember this? They were blessed to be a blessing to the nations even. They weren't blessed to boast in themselves while cursing the nations. And that's, when you read the Old Testament, that's kind of the degeneration of what they started to do. They thought too much of themselves. They cursed the nations, and they cursed God as they ran away from God. So verse 30 goes on, for just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now 
have received mercy, listen, because of their disobedience. So as we see God moving from the first stage of history where he rejects the Gentiles and chooses the Jewish people, we're seeing a great reversal of that as the Jewish people walk away from God. And you start to see God giving them over to themselves as well and to their own disobedience. And God sent them into exile and he, he allowed them to be punished by their own sin even through the Gentile nations who they were boasting over, nations like Assyria and Babylon who had carried them into exile. And then the stunner of stunners, the great surprise is right here in the moment where it was most clear that they least deserved any blessing, they receive the blessing of blessings, the entirety of God's great promise revealed in the person of Jesus Christ, this perfect Messiah God, the promised deliverer, comes to them. They all rejected him, by and large. Some notable exceptions. They reject their very own Savior. And this rejection of their very own Savior seals the deal, seals this new age, the age of disobedience of the Israelite people. This brings upon stage two, where God uses the disobedience of Israel as a hinge for folding in the rest of the nations to this covenant of mercy. Now, there's... Again, great exceptions of this. The, the first 120 disciples were Jewish people. The 500 who saw Jesus alive and didn't back down from what they saw, even at the face of death, didn't turn away from this. Jewish people. The 5,000 and more at the day of Pentecost, also Jewish people. Hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, Jewish people are b- still getting saved today, but it's relatively a small remnant of people that God is growing because, in essence, the corporate whole, all of Israel, is now rejecting God. This is why Paul calls it partial hardening. Verse 25, a partial partial hardening has come upon Israel. This is stage two of world history here. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So Jesus, this Jewish Messiah, the stone that Israel's builders rejected, became the cornerstone. The cornerstone of what? The cornerstone of world redemption. The hinge point of everyone in the world getting blessing upon blessing at their doorstep. And how does he do that? This is what's most amazing. Abraham was blessed to be a blessing. He was supposed to be so blessed that his blessing would spill out on all the other nations. And he squandered that blessing. His people squandered that blessing. So what does Jesus do with that? Jesus, in the seed of Abraham, comes to restore that. And how? He's cursed. He's hung on a cross. And blessing doesn't spill out. His blood spills out. Forgiveness spills out on the nations through this perfect atonement of this perfect sacrifice. And he's dead and laid in a tomb. And on the third day, light spills into that tomb. And life spills back into dead humanity. Jesus was cursed to be a blessing. And he raises from the dead and 
he says to his disciples, go and make disciples of all the nations. Go and make all the peoples, all the languages, all the music styles, all the cultures and customs, and the beautifully diverse foods, hallelujah, make them mine as they really are. Don't appropriate them for yourself. Redeem them for me. Make them mine. Make disciples of all nations. And through Israel, this blessing comes. Through this Jewish Messiah, world redemption comes. Even through Israel's disobedience, God's original dominion mandate from Genesis 1 is restored to humanity that we could truly care for the earth. This is a mystery of God's wisdom. Now, in this age of general disobedience of Israel, it's also the age of the fullness of the Gentiles. Let's bring that verse 25, 26 back up again. Yeah, 25. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles returns, is brought in. This fullness means means, uh, completely filled, like a ship being manned by its sailors. See, before Paul... Jesus had promised this. He, he said, you've rejected me and I go to a, another people that can bear the fruits of this kingdom. And he even gives a, a prediction for world history and how, how history comes to its, its fullness. Jesus says in, in Matthew 24, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to every nation, literally all peoples, and then the end will come because the fullness where all the Gentile nations hear the gospel. The fullness of the Gentiles is brought in. This age of Israel's disobedience is also this, simultaneously, this age of great missionary mercy to Gentile nations like us. And it's to be a stage of divine discomfort a stage that we're more than just comfortable and we're definitely not content to settle on less than God created us for and less than this stage of history is designed for. Can't settle for the goals of any lesser nation like the United States when the goals of the kingdom of God are so much more than the American dream. It's an age of great missionary mercy. Now, I have to be completely honest for a minute. I look back on my first several years of leading a church here in our culture, and there's many things that I I don't necessarily regret as much as I at least grieve. I grieve that I gave in too much to voices of kind of seeker-friendly, if you're familiar with these words, kind of seeker-friendly churchianity and kind of consumer mindsets in the church. As if church is primarily a place where patrons come in and receive some cozy service. Now, don't get me wrong. Church is to be a place where we reflect something better than cozy service. We reflect a Holy Spirit gift of hospitality. The Holy Spirit knows how to make you feel at home way better than all the nice things that American uh, 
service mentality can give us, consumer mentality. And yet I, I kind of got that backwards for a long time. Church, we are, we are at war. We're objects of wartime mercy. We must come together as a church, worship our master, and receive marching orders unto the nations. That's what church is for. And so we need to celebrate those who are sent to the nations, those who are sent to the campus, and celebrate the going, and so celebrate the sending. And if you don't participate either in the going or the sending, and you're a Christian, God forbid that I should make you feel cozy about missing your call. That would be the opposite of shepherding you. That would be misleading you. I want us to feel peace in Christ, which is better than any sort of worldly comfort can bring. And overwhelming security and peace while we are dangerous to the enemy in the nations for such a time as this. We're starting a series in February called Resident Aliens. Here's the big question. How is it that in an election year where people in the world are fighting from left to right and right back to left, how can we be good residents in our nation all all while being citizens of a completely foreign kingdom? If we ever as a church become a place where you just feel at home just the way you are without feeling compelled to be launched out to grow in Jesus and to proclaim Jesus to the nations and to your neighbors, if you feel cozy without being compelled by God, then we will have failed in our mission. So stage one, God uses the world's disobedience to bless Israel. Stage two, Israel's rejection of their God provides this hinge point to fold back in all the nations to the blessing through this Jewish Messiah, Jesus. And in that context, watch how verses 30 and 31 pivot to this final stage. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may receive mercy in essence, mercy again. So this final day, Israel as a corporate whole, a great sweeping revival of the Jewish people will be brought back in to relationship with their God through Jesus Christ. It's coming a day. And even through your joy, even through your sacrifice, even through you deciding that Jesus is better than every other thing that could weigh down on your life, God is hastening the day through us simply enjoying Jesus. See, Israel's rejection provided what Paul called earlier a broken-off branch so that the Gentile nations can be grafted back in and that give us the blessing. But we're supposed to be so full of the blessing of Jesus that it literally makes the Jewish people jealous. I'm just quoting Scripture earlier in, in Romans 11. Through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world and their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? 
See, God brings full inclusion using jealousy. What a mystery. Our joy can make sinners jealous. Jewish sinners, Gentile sinners, jealous. This is what I call redemption FOMO. That the world is supposed to to see what we have in Jesus, which is way better than everything else, and look and say, man, I am missing out. And I don't just have any sort of baseline fear. I have a redeemed reverence that there's something better there. That's what happened with me. I thought before I was a Christian that people who were serious about this stuff just didn't have anything better to do. They were so bored that they weren't invited to the parties like I was invited to. And I came and I saw a, something different than the happiness and fun and cute, silly, trivial joy that I knew. I saw this powerful, conquering joy in a group of young people in a campus ministry. And I had to get me some. I met Jesus. And in the years since, I've been convinced that if, if we as Christians aren't having more fun than the world then there's some sort of unbelief that we're giving into. Because the kingdom of God is way more exhilarating than any sin could ever tickle. And if we are Christians and we are bored, then we simply need to repent. In the context of people who are living out an unstoppable exhilaration of kingdom expansion. I'm very convinced of this, as you can see. And as we grow in this great joy that's greater than fun, in, the, in recent years I've seen sometimes this great joy is displayed most clearly in the least fun moments of my life. Where the world can see, there's no reason why you should be so full of joy now, sister, brother, unless Jesus rose from the dead. Corey Tenboom is a story of this being true. She, she grew up in the Netherlands, I always get the Netherlands and Holland, this all mixed together. She was in a Christian family. And as the Nazis took over her nation and they, the Jews were starting to be persecuted, she, she and her family started hiding Jewish people in their attic. You can read about this, her book, The Hiding Place. Eventually, her family was discovered by the Nazis and they were all sent to labor camps. Everyone but her died in that camp. And yet in this camp, among so many other Jewish people, she was able to display a unique, otherworldly joy and draw many to their Messiah. And through a clerical error, which we call providence, she was released the day before she was supposed to be released from this prison camp and survived the Holocaust. Two decades later, she sees a familiar face when she's preaching in Berlin. And this man comes up to her and she says, do you, he says to her, Corey, Miss Tenboom, do you recognize me? He says, she says, I think I do recognize you. He says, yes, I was one of the guards, the Nazi guards in your camp. Years ago, I came to know Jesus and I've been looking for you so that I could ask you to forgive me. And he extended his hand to her, and she said, I could not forgive him. Her sister had died in this camp. Her, her entire family died in the Holocaust. And she looked at him and says, I couldn't forgive him. And she said the Holy Spirit whispered to her, 
you cannot be forgiven, Corey, if you do not forgive him. And she said she extended her hand to shake his hand, and something of the power of the Holy Spirit overwhelmed her. Unsearchable power flowed through her. And I say, church, this is the manifestation of this promise that God will fold back. He is hastening the day where the disobedience of his chosen people provides us blessing that's too much for us to keep to ourselves. See, God doesn't appear to follow a a linear line in saving people in world history. I mean, think about your own life. Has he ever followed a linear path in your life? See, he moves through the disobedience of the nations to bring the nations in. And I could respond, God, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't save the world like that. And we can all say, thank God, I'm not God. And that you're not God. The wisdom of his mercy, number one. Number two, the danger of presumption. See, we're tempted to think ourselves wiser than God. When we think about our lives, when we think about the world. But if something seems incomprehensible, it's either because it is, or because you don't have the capacity to comprehend it. Don't forget the first words, the very first words of our passage. Verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery. You see, there's something about our own wisdom, King James says, our own conceits, that prevents us from taking in the mysterious wisdom of God. Often it's what you think you know that prevents you from knowing. There's such a transcendent mystery in this wisdom. We're supposed to be confounded by this. And if you go through this and you, you see verse 32 say that he's given over all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all, meaning all different kinds of people. And you look at that and you're like, that, that, I don't get this. I'm confounded. I tell you, you're in good company. Because that's, considering this truth about history, that's where Paul was left. Because after verse 32 is verse 33. Okay, you're still with me? He just pauses. Oh, the depth and riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Or who's given him a gift that he might be repaid? See, we need to be shocked, but not scoffing. We don't need to give God advice about how to save the world. I've met, I've met several 18-year-olds in my, my day that, feel the need to give me advice about marriage and parenting and divulge all their wisdom with how to lead the church. And that's silly. We know that's silly, but what's worse is in our emotions and our thinking, we look out on the world or how God's leading us in our lives, and we often feel inclined to tell God what's most reasonable and logical with how to save the world. And he doesn't, he doesn't need that advice. He knows better than we do. At many junctures of your Christian walk, the, the decision before you will be to decide whether or not you are going to choose for many, many good reasons to trust in the, the mystery and the wisdom of God in his goodness. 
where you have to decide, are you going to allow the roots of your trust in his goodness sink down deeper than the roots of your intellectual understanding? It's a decision that's always before you. And you don't have to explain things fully to fully trust. In fact, there are many crucial things in the Bible that you cannot fully understand, that, but that you must fully believe in. The Trinity. God is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If you do not believe that, you're not a Christian. If you try to understand that fully, your mind will explode. Jesus is fully God, 100%, and fully man, 100%. You must believe this. Run into what, finally? Number three, the weight at the worship center of your heart that all doubt, presumption, and anxiety are displaced like water when you throw a rock into a cup full of water. Verse 33, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. And so I beg of you, brothers and sisters, plunge deeply into the depths that never bottom out for all eternity. Open yourself to the riches that will never, ever end. Verse 36, for from him and through him, And to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Especially if you don't see how this is true. This verse here, this our last verse, verse 36, is the most applicable verse to your everyday life. Especially if you don't see it. To the degree that you are stunned by the majesty of Christ. To that same degree, you will be free, and this is a promise you can bank on, free from pornography, from unforgiveness, from anxiety, from insecurity at work and at home, from obsession with your appearance or anger with your children. The more you plunge into the depths of the riches of his glory, the more these other things, these lesser things will be displaced. And the less that you will feel that you have to cope with them through other worldly habits or hobbies or Netflix. Instead, your hobbies will serve you instead of you serving them. He gave you life, whether you see that or not. All things are from him, as our verse says. All things are to him. He'll receive glory from Each and every individual person in the last day, one way or another, all nations will bow down. All tongues will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But the middle thing here is all things are through him. Redemption is through Jesus Christ. So even though everyone in the world will bring him glory someday, I say to all those who are listening today, bring glory to him now by surrendering to him and worshiping him as the glorious God that he is. Give all your life to the God who gave all of his life to you on the cross. 
And if you've done that, if you're already a Christian, is there something weighing down on you more than him? Is there a fear or an anxiety or a habit or distraction that prevents you receiving more of his glory in your life? And if that's true, then the the great gift of God is that you today can surrender that at his table. Would you stand to your feet with me?